Oh no. I just realised that the notes on my phone haven't synced with the notes I just typed up on my computer about this week's guest. So now I've got to walk back home, open up my laptop, get it to sync with my phone, then come back out. I'm just saying, you think this podcasting lark is easy. It's not. It's highly skilled and it's really difficult. I've got to walk back now and it's cold and I didn't bring my gloves. So just think about that for a while. Rosie, come on. I've got to go back and get my phone to sync with my laptop. Come on, Rose. That's what I'm talking about. A fly past from the hairy bullet. All right, I'll see you in a second. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan. Right, back on track. Literally, metaphorically. Only half an hour later, it's now nearly dark. Cold afternoon. What is the date? I've sort of lost track. Oh my God, it's nearly December. And how are you doing, podcast? Sorry, I didn't even say hello or anything. Adam Buxton here. Nice to be with you. A little bit stressed. Just got back from London a little bit earlier. Before then, I was in Ireland doing the last few dates of my book tour show in Belfast and Dublin. Beautiful country people. An idyllic train journey from Belfast to Dublin. Sun streaming through the windows. The magical Irish countryside sliding past the window of the train. I had a day off in Dublin. I googled music gigs and saw that Sleaford Mods were playing. Went to see Sleaford Mods at the Dublin Olympia Uh, with Goat Girl supporting. Amazing. Loved it. It was a great evening, and then I did a final show at Vicar Street in Dublin on the Monday night. And no disrespect to the other wonderful audiences that I've uh, met over the last few months, but I think that Vicar Street audience is hard to beat for the sheer warmth and enthusiasm. Anyway, look, let me tell you a bit about my guest for podcast number 170, British actor and comedian Kayvan Novak. Novak facts. Kayvan, currently aged 42, was born and brought up in London, the son of Iranian parents. After graduating from drama school, he landed roles in shows like Family Affairs, Holby City and Spooks, on British TV. In 2005, Kayvan and his writer-director friend Ed Tracy made a pilot for a phone prank TV show in which the calls were accompanied by crudely rendered animations. The show was called Phone Jacker and it became a hit series on Channel 4 in 2007. 
despite not being spelled correctly. Phone is spelt P-H-O-N-E, not F-O-N-E. Luckily, no one noticed. And in 2010, the Phone Jacker spin-off show, Face Jacker, arrived on Channel 4. This time, K-Van's characters came to life on screen with the help of elaborate makeup, prosthetics and costume to enable K-Van to interact with unsuspecting members of the public on camera. All the while, K-Van continued to take on acting roles, including TV sitcom Phone Shop, Phone, spelt correctly this time, the Oscar-winning feature film, Syriana, and in 2010, K-Van starred alongside Riz Ahmed, playing Wadge, a dim-witted jihadist from Sheffield, in Chris Morris's film Four Lions. K-Van, of course, also featured in Morris's 2019 satire of American homeland security, The Day Shall Come. More recently, K-Van has been starring with friends of the podcast Matt Berry and Tash Dimitriou in What We Do in the Shadows. But when we spoke face-to-face in a London hotel room back in late June of this year, 2021, we focused mainly on how K-Van made the transition from being a jobbing actor, dealing with his share of typecasting, to creating characters from a wide range of nationalities and ethnicities for comic effect on phone and later face jacker. And we spoke about the joyful and the potentially problematic areas of doing so. Towards the end of the podcast, there's also a clash of the BBC documentarians as K-Van unleashes the full force of his uncanny Louis Theroux impression, and I respond with my best attempt at Adam Curtis. Back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now, with K-Van Novak, here we go. Be really close to this. Yeah, I like system. I like I like being rolling rats ass close on the mic. I've got in a, my face. I've got a big fluffy cover on K Van's mic. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, funny. You can watch it on the YouTube stream. Is there a YouTube? no? I, I, I'm not visual. It's not, podcast is not about visuals. Should Tell be Joe Rogan, mate. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think I've never listened to his podcast. I've only ever watched it. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you watch it right the way through for three hours or whatever? No, I kind of got into watching just clips on YouTube and then I got into watching him trying to absorb other people's knowledge whilst not being funny ever or making any jokes. And I find that quite, it's, it's fascinating that he can spend that long without cracking a joke, even though he is a comedian mm-hmm. and he's a stand-up. I just find that amazing. I mean, I've gone... 58 seconds without cracking a joke which is a long time for me you are you always on well no i'm always off um being off being on uh being funny being extroverted being introverted it's something that i can never quite get on top of or decide whether i am introverted or extroverted because when i was 
younger, the people I looked up to, the people I wanted to be like, were charismatic, loud, confident. Who are we talking about? Oh, mainly classmates, I'd say. Oh, okay. To the point of me being 13, I was the class clown. And I loved my school. I loved the teachers. I just felt like, yes, I knew my place. When I left there, I went to secondary school and it became like I'd left this little pond and suddenly all these tributaries of all these Larry kids kind of are all kind of coming into this new lake or ocean, it felt like. I felt very out of place. I didn't know what the fuck I was No doing. longer the big fish. No, no. No longer the big fish. And it was like, no, you're in secondary school and it was about smoking weed. I didn't till I was 17 or something. Getting girls, which I hadn't. I'd had like one kiss when I was 13 mm. and then that was it. It was like, um, Were you always a big, good-looking galoot? Or um, were you uh, sort of one of these people who starts out being quite weird-looking in their adolescence and then blossoms into a <laughs> wonderful-looking human? Like you, Adam. <laughs> um, no, I'd say I was handsome. I was tall till I was 13. And then something extraordinary happened. My nose exploded and it became more pronounced right yeah so then i guess i was the class clown up to that point but it was really i think my sense of humor was always there but the personality that i built around it was actually kind of trying to reach around this nose that was in the middle of my face giving your nose a reach around giving my nose a reach around right which it was possible you know it was a a well-endowed nose which i've had you know since then i'm I think, I'm sure I've mentioned this. I may not have, but I, I did have some rhinoplasty. Did you? I did, yeah. Best I thing mean, I ever I've did. I mean, I've never thought about your nose. You're, you, you're a very think nicely proportioned it. person. Well, think about it. Sure. <laughs> was it a curvature that you were it unhappy was, with? Well, or if was you, it? Yeah. I mean, if you see my kind of earlier television work or film work, mm. then my Mark One, as my mate calls it, is there, you know, in all its glory. Yeah. You know, in such things as Spooks or Syriana. Right. Or George Clooney. You know, my old nose is there. It was weird because it actually coincided with, I guess, from 2001, 2005, playing terrorist, doctor, pimp, uh, strip club manager, um, which I had great fun doing. Because you have a strong look. I mean, where, where are your family from? Uh, Iranian. Okay. So they're Iranian, yeah. Um, so, yes, you have that kind of quintessentially Middle Eastern... Middle Eastern look. Look. And then, yeah, most of the parts I play, I would adopt this kind of Middle Eastern menacing <laughs> voice. Is that what your parents sound like? No, no, no. My, my parents left Iran. They got married at 19, went to America, hmm. and moved, moved to Texas, of all places. Went to university in Arlington, Texas. And around the time that I was conceived, the Iranian revolution was kicking off. You know, it, it was kind of bubbling under the surface. It was 1978 yes. when I was born. Um, so they decided not to have me in America. They decided to come to the UK. I was born here. Then I went to Iran for a bit for like seven months. Then the, Reven the Iranian revolution kind of was really kicking off. And they were like, well, we should come back to the UK. So... That was the story of my birth. Mm. The story of my birth. And then fast forwarding 20 years or whatever, drama school, acting agent, terrorist parts, 2005, oh, nose exploding, 2005, 
oh god is it my acting or is it my nose i haven't been laid in four months this is just oh my god get it off so then found a plastic surgeon called um dr matty wait can, how why did you start getting paranoid about your nose i mean I've did all, you get comments or anything yeah I'd, I'd had comments in my life totally really yeah man but from dicks though surely yeah but it doesn't matter you know it was prominent i had a it was part of my identity yeah and I would kind of flip-flop between going, I love my nose. Fuck them. You know, this nose is here to stay. And then I wouldn't get an acting job for eight months. I'd be like, this nose has got to go. You blame the nose. I blame the nose. I mean, yeah, I blame the nose. And then I wouldn't blame the nose. And I would blame the nose. Mm. Um, Were you nervous about getting surgery? I wasn't, actually. I was really excited about it. Did I even tell my agent? I don't know. that. No, listen. No, my agent. <laughs> My old agent, my first agent, Simon Beresford. Simon, if you're listening, love you very much. Thank you for all those lunches that we'd go on. Now, listen, I know you haven't worked in eight months, but look, we're going to get you a little film. This is um, Simon. This is Simon. And get you a lovely part in the film. Um, maybe a little TV series here and there. You know, might do a couple of shorts. And uh, maybe a theatre run in the Western. How does that sound? That sounds great, Simon. Okay, darling, don't call me again. Bye. <laughs> I mean, you need that. You know, if you're not working, then you're like, oh, yeah. my God. No, I can imagine. That's why, I mean, I've never, I've never been an actor in that way. Have well, you not? No. You've acted in stuff. Yeah, but only because I knew people who were doing things and they said, oh, do you want to be in this thing? Oh, Flucky, I didn't know anyone. I still don't. It's weird. I no, know but you. I, yeah, but I only got a couple of parts that way. And then... Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz I got because, yeah, because I knew Edgar a little bit. I still had to audition for it. Did you? Yeah. Cheeky fucker. I was going to go, I was going to be one of the cops, but I think Kevin Eldon ended up getting the part that I might have played. Yeah, he's great. He's better. He, yeah, they chose well. He's always good. But you were great, man. Well, all I had to do was get killed. And, you did um, it so well. And get slapped on the back very hard by Pierce Brosnan. No, oh. not Pierce Brosnan. Mr. It was Doubtfire, not me. I'm allergic to pepper. <laughs> Your accent's a little muddled. <laughs> That's the noise, Bronson noise. Now, who am I thinking of? Another Bond. Um, you know, Dalton. Oh. oh, yeah. Timothy Dalton. He's great. I told this boring story enough. Can't even remember the names. Yeah. Um, oh, the boring story about Hot Fuzz. About being in Hot Fuzz oh, yeah, and getting yeah. slapped too hard on the back well, by look, Timothy Dalton. Well, look, then I won't mention Hot Fuzz again. No, that's fine. Uh, I like it. You know what? I threw myself with the whole anecdote about nose jobs. Oh, yeah. Have you? Do you I not mean, normally was, talk about that? I've never spoken about that. Really? No, I mean, you know... Why? Because you think it makes you look superficial. Do you think it, it's a superficial <laughs> thing to do? No, people have surgery all the time. I never quite <clears throat> understand... I, I understand totally for an actor. Some, for a person who is all about the way they look on camera, mm. you know, that's part of your job. But for an ordinary citizen, mm. I don't know. I suppose it's because I'm quite vain myself, so I just don't want to respond to my vanity in that way. I'm not suggesting that everyone who gets surgery is acting under the uh, same impulses as me, but that's, that's what it feels like to me. I just sort of think, don't worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> you know, you're you. You don't need to change that thing. That's, yeah, if I'd heard that, which I'm sure I did, I'd just been like, no, I'm still doing it. Yeah, fair I enough. worry about, you know, my kids. Why? Because, you know... There's a time bomb. You don't have children yet, right? Not yet. No. But when I do, you know, daddy, daddy, there's this thing on my face. So, oh, shit, I didn't tell you. 
There it is. It's back. <laughs> it's come back. It's the ghost of Christmas past and it's on your face. I can't remember what you... I'm going to have to Google your nose now. Do it. What would I look for? Caveman? No. Uh, spooks. Spooks. You can watch it on iPlayer. I mean, it, you look good. Yeah. You look like a guy with a face. That's what they say. <laughs> you really do, though. I just would not look at that person and go, look at the nose know, of but this it's guy. A, it's a 2D picture. It looked good. I mean, you know, I looked slick. I looked, you know, well-groomed. Yeah. But it was just, you know, you need a bit of extra help. And Dr. Matt is going to do that for you. That's, you know, what Dr. Matt would do. He got me in, sit down, show what you don't, don't, what don't you like about your nose. I was like, well, you know, this is a bit, there's a bit of a hook there. And it's a bit bulbous on the end. Okay, you know what? Uh, you will always have big nose, but perhaps we can make it better big nose. I'm like, better big nose it is, man. Let's do it. So that's, and well, it was good. It was yeah. great. And then when he, when the anesthetist kind of put me to sleep, yeah. um, he suddenly Dr. Matty's there and I'm like getting sleepy. I'm on the trolley. He's like, tell me again what you want. <laughs> I'm like, this is he was winding you up though, wasn't he? Was he? I don't know. That's a good wind up. It's a, that's a terrifying wind-up, yeah. just as you're falling under you want the big anesthetic. Scoop, yeah? You want big scoop nose? You want uh, Pamela Anderson scoop nose? Yeah, that's it. So at what point then did you yeah. suddenly take your destiny into your own hands and think, look, acting is fine. I've got other things I can do. I've got my own skills, my own naughty comedic wind-up skills that I can harness to be my own boss. The lesson I enjoyed most at drama school was radio because I got to be everyone. I got to do all the voices, take piss out teachers, you know. Suddenly I was like, oh, wow, I can do that thing that I would do all my life, which was watch Spitting Image at the age of four. And, you know, suddenly I'm Prince Charles. Or, oh, Bottoms, oh, Prince Philip, what's a Bottoms, you know. <laughs> Just doing that, but like from a young age and yeah. then getting wheeled out at dinner parties and doing these impressions. I'm like, okay, well, I'm a natural mimic. But then suddenly I'm like, this career that I have, this acting career, does not utilize any of those skills mm. at all. I'm just going, well, you look like this, so you have to play this kind of character. You look like that, so you have to play that kind of character. It's like, okay, I can do my sinister Middle Eastern accent for you. Yeah. Um, but that's it. I'm like, nah, man, this, this grapefruit ain't getting squeezed. Okay, so I'm like, right, well... I'll go and do a voice tape and then I'll send it off to all these voiceover agents and they'll be like, he's incredible. We must have him on our books. Nothing, you know, nothing. I'd call up. Hello, did you get my CD? Yeah, sorry, books are full. So I was like, oh, okay. So then that frustration created this beast, this animal that would then go and do these calls where I'd just pretend to be other people, record them and then send that in. But it was this kind of ball of energy that I knew I had to make a change in my own life somehow. Because otherwise I'd just be swallowed up into this, you know, this fucking machine of... I don't even know how to describe it. It was just like I had to do something. So, you know, a lot of my motivation was kind of political. You know, I'd do these little... You know, in the same way that you would do your stuff with Joe and, you know, make things. You don't necessarily know why you're making them. You kind of go, well, I have to make it. I have to make this. My motivation was always to play it to friends. Yeah. Which I would do eventually after I made these prank calls. I would make a CD and then I would play it. But 
really, you know, I wanted, I wanted more than that. I wanted the world to know that I was talented and I could do all these funny voices and I was funny, you know. Mm. I had to escape this, whatever, this glass ceiling of like, no, you will only play these kind of characters and there's no... You want to be in the driving seat. I want to be in the driving seat, right? Hey, you need to move much faster in the street. Come on, I want you to be speedy with your feet. You're wasting my valuable time. I got people to meet. But instead I'm moving very slowly behind your ass. Hey! You're married, right? I am married, yes. Happily? Uh, am I happily married? Yeah. Oh, no, not really, no. No? No, I always pretend that I am. Okay. But uh, I think this is a great opportunity for me to say, mm, not really. But wait, are you going to get divorced? Um, I suppose at some point, yeah, yeah. No, I'm... Sorry, I, I haven't thought this riff through. You're a very good actor. I was very, I was very convinced. <laughs> Why would I admit that I wasn't happily it's married? It's easier to say that because, you know, I guess part of you is like, am I happy? I don't know. So how are things? Yeah, really great. <laughs> you know, am I lying? You're not married yet though, right? Yeah, you have oh, yeah. a fiancé. Yeah. Do you think your listeners are married or are they more single? Uh, I've got no idea. What are you? Are you married? Are I you would single? imagine there's quite a few married people listening to this. And they will, I hope, be able to relate to a lot of the things that I say about marriage. It is a very unique condition. It's a constant challenge to keep recalibrating and adapting. Because of kids? Everything. Everything about it. Everything about just sharing a life and a house with the same person. I mean, this is our 20-year anniversary coming up. What's your wife called? Uh, I never say. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, she, I always just call her my wife. Okay. Although I don't always do the voice now. She's called Sarah. And um, I was spending time with Adam and Sarah. They'd been married for over 40 years. I'd known Adam as a child. We were friends. We used to listen to hip-hop together. I sensed that he was a little tense. I asked him why. Are you a little tense, Adam? Do the are you okay one. Are you okay? <laughs> well, I just... <laughs> I don't know. I just got this sense that you hadn't had sex with your wife for about three or four years. Are, they, are you is that, okay? Is that presumptive of me to say that? So you're doing Nick Broomfield, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what Matt Berry said to me when I did an impression of <laughs> That's Louis Theroux, listeners. Louis I'm going to make you do more Louis Theroux yeah, later okay. on. But anyway, to circle back round and to close the loop. The marriage, uh, the I unhappy marriage. I believe that I am happily married. I love my wife very much. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. She's an incredible woman. I am very attracted to her. You give off happy vibes. And I just say, like, when I good. meet you and speak to you, like, there's a good vibe there. All right, good. That's a nice thing to say. Yeah. But it is, I mean, it is hard. It's, it's like, you have to kind of, when you, every now and again, you sort of think, Oh, they're not doing what I want them to do. And I think it's important that they do do this thing that I want them to do. And you have to kind of think really hard, like, is this actually important? Is this worth getting bent out of shape about? And uh, that I've, I'm slowly getting better at judging those moments. It kind of reminds me of um, when I hang out with my parents, because they've been married for 50 years. Mm. And they're still in love and they still make each other laugh. 
and there's still moments of intense cruelty between them but they still they just kind of shake it off and you know my mum will be mean to my dad and my dad will react badly and yeah that's cool they're still together that boats, it is. That boats well, man. Oh, man, that's, they're my heroes when it comes to, you know, a lot of things. And that is one of them. They really are cool motherfuckers, a pair yeah. of them. You know, they've been a unit. They married at 19 and they're off, man. At 19? 19. Good effort. Very good. I mean, my parents uh, didn't do so well. I mean, Did they not? No, as far as each other were concerned. Did you witness a lot of... Um, arguments and shouting growing up yes okay we don't have to we don't have to do this isn't the cave dr cave Norberg. for a while not for a while not and then but it all just suddenly blew up because my dad got very badly into debt and wow so there was a period in the 80s where he just didn't know what he was going to do and he was really out of his depth then from gambling? No, from sending us to posh schools. Oh, my God. And, uh, Bless him. Bless oh, him for that. Yeah, well, exactly. What a waste of fucking money. Well, I have the, the thought has occurred to me. Is that where we met? Did we meet there? Did we meet at Are posh school? Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, we did meet at posh school, yeah. That's why we all speak a little bit similarly, like me that. and Joe and Louie. Anyway, look, back to you. Oh, yeah, back to me. So... All your phone call mm. shenanigans eventually come to the attention. How did they come to the attention of Channel 4? You sent them in or what? No, no. I met a dude at a house party. I said, you look like Matt Letizia. And it was Ed Tracy. I said, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm a director. Um, I said, well, I'm an actor. And he said, oh, well, I'm making a film about, a short film about minicab drivers. I was like, I'll be in that. That sounds great, man. I'd love to play a minicab driver. So I went and starred. I did a day's filming on this minicab film where I had a little part. And I just fucking, I was so, it was a summer. I was frustrated. I hadn't had sex in months and months. I wasn't working. I was like, outlet, perform, performance, go. Ready to explode. Explode, you know, in this cab office that he got. He'd hired it out. I was working with other kind of non-actors and I was just like I was in heaven man and I was on fire that day and he was filming it and he was just capturing it anyway I didn't know whether I'd done any good or what off I went then he was like yeah, I get a call from him he's like oh I've cut some of the stuff up in the mini cab do you want to see so I was like yeah so I met him in a pub he sat me down he had his laptop and he played me this footage of me in this cab office and like some music and I was like this is amazing. I'm a like, genius. I was like, you've captured it. You've yeah. captured my brilliance. And it's brilliantly shot and it looks real and it feels wicked. Just like awesome. So then, you know, I was smitten. Yeah. Uh, we did this short film and then we did some other character stuff. But he hadn't yet heard these prank calls that I'd done. I know it was one night around here with a few mates. I, was, I put on my CD, my prank call CD, and we listened to it. Who wants to hear my prank call CD? (laughs) Right, this party's shit. Let's get it cooking. Have you got a CD player? (laughs) Excellent. Everyone, everyone. Listen to this. (laughs) Hello, uh, you have doved? What do you think, guys? Anyway, he was like completely, he was like, this is brilliant, right? So he took it upon himself 
he took one of the calls and he started putting pictures oh. to the the call. Yep. Send it to me. I was like, this is brilliant. I love this, man. Um, I did one where I called up the first full one that we did. I called up a random dude and I was like, my first line was, I need a getaway driver. Eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Kilburn High Road. Yes or no? He's like, what? You need a getaway driver? I was like, yeah, I need a getaway driver. I heard you would have meant to call. Uh, yeah, uh, well, the thing is, uh, like, I don't know how I kept this guy engaged, right? But he was telling me that, yeah, yeah, I, uh, the thing is, I can't drive at the moment because I got my, my injury. I was like, a poor lower body. He's like, ah, I was like, perfect. It's a decoy. So I was like, I wouldn't let him go. And he started animating it, did the mouth and stuff. And then I was like, this is brilliant. So then we kind of sat down and we did it together. And I was like, oh, I love, this is awesome. Like, we're properly working together on these visuals to make this call. Um, didn't know what we we're going to do with it. Anyway, it's a Friday night or a Thursday night. 2005, really hot. I'm watching Channel 4 and it's Comedy Lab, Modern Toss. Oh, yeah. Was on. And then at the end of it, they were like, do you think you can do better than this? Well, send your stuff in to Comedy Lab, Channel 4. I was like, oh, my God, yes. So I can write down the address. Called up Ed. I was like, Ed, man, can you put together everything, like edit all together, like a 10-minute thing? And I've got some scripts and stuff and my prank call CDs. Yeah. And I hand-delivered it on the deadline at Horse Ferry Road, Channel 4. Month later, Ed calls me up dude, we've got a fucking meeting at Channel 4. They, they've seen the stuff. They want to meet us. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. So then we got a pilot. And we were like, oh, my God. We've got a fucking pilot. Did you have to jump through a lot of hoops legally? Were there problems with... You get consent. Right, okay. So any call, that if I call someone, then you would have to get consent. To would you phone you. them back or would you say at the end of the call... Yeah, I wouldn't, but someone else would. A researcher. Right. And, most, and did most people give consent? A lot of them did. A few kind of, they were like, no. And those would hurt, you know. Because you were, from the beginning, not in the business of humiliating them. I mean, I never enjoyed prank calls that were trying to kind of screw with people's minds too badly. Yeah. I felt with your stuff that you, I mean, it's always going to be a little bit on the edge. Were you conscious of pushing things and making them edgy? Were you sort of thinking, well, this feels a little bit edgy. I'm just going to push it a little bit. I, I never wanted to be edgy. Right. Um, for me, it's about feeling naughty, yes. But I never wanted to kind of... I never wanted to, like, ruin someone's day. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't looking for an aggressive reaction. I was looking for an interaction that would develop a lot of the time. What was your favorite or one of your favorites that maybe is a little bit offbeat that isn't a regularly? Um, I remember the, one of the first times I played Terry Tibbs, who's like my... Uh, who just came from like, oh, you know, what kind of guy buys an Aston Martin? Because a lot of the time, a lot of the sources of my numbers as well were car adverts, phone book, ads in general. I mean, how well was the internet working? And it was working pretty well. But I would just have phone book, phone book, phone book, Thompson directory. Thompson local. And the, the calls would either be inspired by the ad or loot 
you know, yeah. things for sale, wooden ladders, talk to me. You know, that's like one of the, 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 the most kind of Terry Tibbs quoted back to me calls that I do, you know, and it was like my 58th call of the morning. You know what I mean? It's like, wooden ladders, talk to me. And she was like, who's this? Oh, she was a northern lass. She was like, oh, no, I'm not having you talk to me like that. You know, and it was like, it got her blood going, right? Yeah. And that's what you want, that kind of interaction where they're giving as good as they get. And I love that. And what would happen, actually, we had in the office, I'd be in, like, my booth, and all the animators would be there with Ed, and they'd be like, if a call was good, I'd upload it, and then they'd, they'd all be listening to, like, the calls that I made that day. And when I'd come out of that booth, if I could see them kind of giggling at their computers, I felt so good. It was hard, man. I think it took, like, eight or nine months to make the first season. It was intense, man. I'm because sure. I'd do the calls and then I'd come out and I'd be animating with Ed and all of them lot. What was the impulse to turn it into a more visual thing? I suppose it's obvious that you, you're an actor, you, you like to dress up, you wanted to be on camera. I'd spend two years um, doing prank phone calls uh, and animation. And I yeah, I wanted to do some characters in real life. And, you know... We didn't know what we were going to do, but Channel 4 were like, right, we believe in you guys. Here's some money. Play. Just do some shit and mm. see what happens. Good old days. Good old days, right? So we had a little office in Hattrick Productions. Myself, Ed, and our researcher, Joe Varley. This is 2010. This is not, yeah, this is this 2010. Time. This is yeah. 2010. Oh, is it 20, 2009? And we just start playing. And like, I'm just there doing voices, doing impressions, uh, doing characters, jumping up and like doing something. And then we kind of go, oh, what should we do? What should we do? Should we? And then the first character I ever did actually out and about was like an old Indian man. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any prosthetics. I just had like a really bad gray mustache. And I had a mobility scooter. And it was called Din Huni. And it was just, I don't know why it was called that. It was like a play on Houdini or Din Huni. And yeah. so we went with some hidden cameras to Ikea. And I had learned the lesson very quickly that it's all very well pretending to be someone else. But for an audience to find that interesting, you've got to be doing something. You can't just be driving around going oh hey look at me i'm pretending to be everyone thinks i'm an old indian man because i'm you know going going on my scooter in ikea literally five minutes in to be in ikea we had security guard they just clocked us immediately so we're like okay this is quite tricky then hidden camera stuff with a real person having real interactions with people this is going to be weird because there was no like Hey, you've done those things on the on the on the telephone. Just put some prosthetics on. You can play them in real life. Be great. It was like, no, actually, what am I doing in these scenarios? Yeah, that's a it's a totally different genre with a different set of challenges. Completely, and it was again, it was like, and you're in the heavy prosthetics not yet, and makeup. Not yet. Oh, okay. So I'm like, well, look, I need to do something like. Eddie Murphy did in Coming to America mm-hmm. in the barbershop scene where he's playing like six different people. I can do that. So then Joe finds a prosthetic makeup artist called Christian Mallet, and I have a meeting with him and he's very serious and you know he's not, uh, I keep 
cracking jokes and he just completely ignores me and you know he's a very serious and talented individual who's like look if you want to look like terry tibbs i can make you look like terry tibbs and i was like no fucking way you're gonna make me look like terry. there's no way and the first morning of when we were going to shoot that we hired a rolls royce and i go to christian mallet's workshop i walk in and I just see Terry's face on a fucking plaster cast of my face. And I'm like, there's no way that you're going to stick that on my face. And I'm going to be, anyone's going to fucking believe that I'm actually a 60 year old white man from Rickmansworth. No fucking way. Anyway, four hours later, it's just unbelievable. The excitement and the rush, it was just amazing. I was Terry Tibbs. and I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is amazing. I felt like a superhero. Yeah. I felt like I could fly. And again, it was like, actually, even though that day was amazing and I love being Terry, the point of him existing didn't yet make sense within a, a new show, whatever uh-huh. that show would be. And even after, you know, our three-month development period, I had all these characters... But again, the purpose of them wasn't nailed down. And I was like, this is this could fail, man. And I remember I was doing, I had to do, it was January. I was like, I've got to do the pilot of this. I've got to get this right. Figure out what the next thing is after Phone Jacket. Then I've got to go off and do four lines. Right, you'd been cast in that. Yeah, been cast in that. So I was like, fuck, this is like serious. I remember it was New Year's Eve. I had a fucking brandy and marijuana induced meltdown <laughs> in a pub and i was like right I, I, i'm, I'm going to stop drinking so i stopped drinking i wasn't an alcoholic or anything but i was just got to the point where i was like this is bad my relationship had gone bad and i was like right i didn't drink for six months and this six month period i did the taster for whatever face jacker was going to be those long days in prosthetic you you're paranoid you think oh my god they know it's i'm wearing a prosthetic i'm not fooling anyone you know your nerves are shredded like i think with actors as well the reason that actors sometimes have meltdowns and go off is because their emotional taps have to be open and sometimes it's not easy to close those taps yeah you know because you're using that part of yourself that is it's fucking you know it's it's also unhinged it's also it's unhinged it's also kind of unnatural in a way it's it's not what most people do in normal social interaction most people tend to be straight with each other honest with each other they don't put on an accent they don't try and fool each other they do obviously it does happen and there are layers of it i think that happens more than actually an honest interaction takes place yeah maybe. they do put voices on they do try and pull the wool over your eyes they are trying to make you think something of them i think it happens all the time and when i become these characters it's like i'm free of that because i can just go fucking all out with it do you know what i mean yeah, yeah yeah so any insecurities in my own life i really want you to think i'm this or that or you know handsome attractive uh charismatic funny all those things go out the window And also that's something to be said about acceptance, which is what I think a big part of playing another character in this way where it does feel like a holiday from yourself Mm -hmm. and your own insecurities and how you see yourself in the world and how you imagine other people perceive you. 
but you know i'm talking like this but i'm really having a conversation you know it's that actually i've made myself into this shape because i'm luring you in mm. and then you might think a certain thing about because you hear that voice so you imagine i'm a certain way why is he doing the racist voice why is he doing the racist voice um but you know i've called you up you don't know that i'm doing a voice you think yeah, that's a real yeah. person and actually that's speaking to the racist or the prejudice in you because that's the whole point yeah I think that doing this character is going to induce some kind of reaction from you. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to use that against you or I'm going to, you're going to prove me wrong and actually we're going to have a great conversation and a great interaction. And that was part of the journey that I was going on. Mm. Um, Before we come back to you being a massive racist and doing the <laughs> accents, which, you know, we have to talk about, I think. Obviously, I don't think you're a massive racist, but... There are elements of that show that I'm interested in the conversations you are having about them. Maybe we'll talk about it now. Yeah. Because, because also you're involved with Four Lions at that point. That is also a production that had a lot of controversy around it before people had seen it. And they yeah. were, this is Chris Morris's film yeah. about these wannabe jihadis from Sheffield. Yeah. Not even a decade after the Twin Towers attack when the war on terror is still very much raging, Islamophobia is raging as well. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of project that could easily be, and was easily misinterpreted. I don't think it was controversial when it came out. I mean, when people saw Four Lions, they understood what the deal was. I got a sense that people wanted to be outraged by it before they watched it. Um, But actually what happened was it came out in like 96 cinemas and then... By the weekend, it increased to like 300 cinemas. Yes. Because it was like a huge hit. And Chris Morris was never interested in just pushing people's buttons for the sake of it. He spent and always does spend a great deal of time researching and spending time with the kind of people that he's... Very much so. ...writing about. Forensic. He's forensic. And he's always looking for the truth in everything. Hmm. And he's not a sensationalist. And... There's there's no slop in anything that he does. There's no laziness in anything that he does. And that's what makes him just an amazing director and someone you will just do anything for. And would he break down what he was trying to do as far as the portrayal of British Muslims, things like that? Did you ever have conversations about that? He wasn't trying that? to portray British Muslims. He was portraying five guys who were Muslim, who had decided that they were going to do something about what was going on in the world in their own misguided way. Right. You know? Yeah, fair enough. That's, that's a, I I sort of fell into the tabloid trap of assuming that this is a kind of... We'll um, get you out of that, don't worry. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It was, the, the film was easily portrayed as that. It's like, this is what Chris Morris thinks of Muslims in Britain kind of thing. There would be a conversation now about a person of one nationality playing a person of another nationality or a different... I'll just spit it out. No, but you know what I mean? Like, th- those those conversations were not happening to the same degree that they're happening now back in 2010. No, no. Um, they, they, I mean, that it was never a conversation I ever have had, really, yeah. ever. Little Britain had been out since well it started in 2003 i think little britain yeah on the radio right on the radio right the tv show had been out for a few years i can't remember if they had started doing their more outrageous prosthetics blacking up etc yeah. by that point but did you have a conversation 
around that area with your producer and with your commissioning editor and about the wisdom of portraying black characters particularly and wearing the big black prosthetic? Uh, I didn't have any conversations with anyone because for me, I was playing white, black, brown. I was playing everyone, basically. So it was just another character in my repertoire. Yeah. You know? And going back to Eddie Murphy in that barbershop, you know, that for me was the inspiration of like, listen, man, I, I can do characters like Eddie Murphy can do characters and I've got the prosthetics. And now, you know, as I said, to actually nail a good prank in prosthetics was like really difficult so the fact that we actually did two seasons of face jacker and it was as popular as it was um that's just down to all we wanted was to make something that was very funny mm. and that was difficult did you do. ever get any pushback at the time from people saying actually it's not as simple as just saying oh i'm an equal because sometimes what you get from comedians certain comedians is they say well yeah. i'm a equal opportunities offender i'll go after anyone blah 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 i don't care yeah, what color I, they I mean, are yeah, but actually I, it's not that simple is it because it becomes whether you're whether you believe in the whole marxist idea of everything being a power struggle or whatever the fact is that not every minority group has a similar status within society so the idea of kind of taking the piss out of one group is not necessarily the same as taking the piss out of another group it has a different effect it's it's operating within a different well, nexus of okay prejudice. but what i'm saying is that um you're saying that um me playing a character is taking the piss out of that character that's the way it's easily portrayed or yeah, assimilated that, that's not a motivating factor in yeah. me wanting to play a character i look any character i want to play feels like i'm stepping into a superhero's skin mm -hmm. and that superhero allows me to interact with anyone and to do it in a funny way where i can outsmart them and manipulate them to the point where we've had an interaction that's worth editing down and presenting as entertainment mm. on tv you know i love all my characters that i play And I've only ever been motivated by love, mm. you know, and actually wanting to be funny. But, you know, I didn't pick an easy medium to try and make jokes. But for me, it wasn't about making jokes as much. It was about wanting to play characters in real life situations, which I do very well. Yeah. So, it was, I mean, with with you got from some other shows sometimes if people portrayed certainly black characters and they weren't themselves black you got the sense that there was a part of them that knew it was they were on dodgy ground you know what i mean yeah that they'd lived through the 90s and felt as if most of the conversations around race had been more or less had everyone was fine with each other yeah. everyone knew that racism was bad so now let's just play around and go a little bit nuts But by the end of the uh, first decade of the 2000s, I mm. think that people were beginning to think about it a little different. I mean, I made a point around the time that I made Phone Jacker, and that was if Phone Jacker had been made by four white guys, it might have been looked at very differently. Right, yes, yes. Rather than being performed by one brown guy, i.e. me. Yeah. And it, it, is, it is a very complicated and complex world to try and 
um, navigate. Ex- navigate, but also, but I don't want to feel that like I'm navigating because I don't want to feel like, oh, I mustn't say the wrong thing you know, in case it gets put into uh, exclamation marks and, you know, used against me. It's like, actually, no, my comedy is, has come from me. It's very, it's honest in the way that I honestly wanted to play these characters. I honestly wanted to, from my background, being second generation Iranian in London, these are the people that I have experienced. Mm-hmm. And these are the characters and these are the personalities that I've absorbed. And all I'm doing through either the the deception of being over the telephone or in a disguise, I'm able to express whatever it was that I absorbed in a comedic way that people find funny. And I find funny. Now, in 2021, or 2022, whenever you put this out, 2023 maybe. Um, yeah, definitely. Things, things never stop changing. And they will continue to change right. and evolve. And absolutely, when I hear people go, oh, you can't make jokes about nothing anymore. You can. Of course you can. You can make jokes about everything, about everything now, you know. You don't want to be there going, oh, I can't say this, I can't say that. Oh, maybe you can't. Say something else. You know? What, you want to say the same joke that you said 25 years ago? Well, you're welcome to. Yeah, but you will get, you will meet some resistance. Well, you'll, you'll, but also, you know, the joke that you deliver, the joke that you present to someone is presented to them, right? Their experience that got them to this point where you're now going, here, have a joke, right? They need to feel that you may have, swam through the same waters of experience because you're going i'm a comedian i'm basing my joke on my experience which i've now put into this joke and Mm -hmm. i'm presenting with this joke if i'm trying to give you a joke that i gave you 15 years ago then you're like have you just where have you been for the last 15 years you know yeah yeah yeah. everything my experience i'm carrying the atmosphere that we're the, the air that we're breathing is clearly different and this dies because this no longer survives in this atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that because you made it sound like space. Well, but I mean, you've done a new series on Spotify of Phone Jacker. I have, I have calls, I, and you've, you're not doing all the characters that you would have done 11 years ago. I'm doing a lot of the characters. I'm doing a lot of new characters, and you know, depending on when you put this out, currently, it's been. Very positive. And yeah. it's at number two in the charts. Good one. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm blown away by it. Because actually, there was a time when I thought, oh, God, I'm doing characters and accents and people from different countries and also, you know, quite a lot of posh white people too. Um, but is somehow, is this going to be misconstrued or, you know, is it going to be used against me somehow? Is there going to be some kind of backlash and i mean it's a weird thing to be anxious about because really as a comedian all you really want to be anxious about is are people going to find it funny mm-hmm. um yeah but now but there's a whole new machine that right. i feel can you know inhale this and spit it out in a way that creates a shape that people recognize as oh no that's bad yeah without actually going you know like oh four lines you can't make jokes about terrorists without actually having seen the movie. Yes. But, you know, my comedy is very personal to me. And 
the mission and the journey that I'm on and have been on in my life. Mm. And ultimately, any interaction I have is about tolerance, is about acceptance. And I need to play characters from different countries or, you know, backgrounds if I want to, because that's the character that I've created for whatever reason. And there's never any bad intention behind it. It's never about making fun of that character. It's always a part of me. Yeah. These I guess, characters are all parts of me. I guess the argument would be that I don't really care what your intention is. This is the net result of these kinds of attitudes or these kinds of jokes. Like in the, uh, in the olden days, you would have heard, I think most people were on the same page about like, well, where's this coming from? You know, okay, so you're going to do an accent of uh you're a white person doing an accent of a person of color where's the joke who's the butt of the joke is this making fun of their culture is this sort of belittling them somehow or is it coming from a more generous place that's the way you used to process those kinds of things but i think now it's just like no don't even go there because you because mm -hmm. you you haven't walked in that person's shoes you don't know what their lives are like best just leave it alone you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that's the argument that I hear from some people. I'm I, my, my. I don't believe that you'd listen to any phonejacker calls and think that. No, I. I mean, I didn't. You know, I. I, I still. You experience the characters as well. You're basically experiencing a conversation between a real person and me. Yeah. In character, and what you get from that interaction is very different to if I had played that character in isolation in a scripted thing, then yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go near that. Mm. I wouldn't do that, you know, but because it's an interaction with a real person, there's value there. Intrinsic value that is funny and enlightening and interesting. And it makes you laugh. And these are all people who will have found out that it was this bloke of Iranian heritage doing the voices. Do you really? still speak the language? I what? speak Farsi, yeah. Farsi. But I mainly... Farsi. You have Farsi. to sort of do it like... Sort Farsi. Of Farsi. 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 Salam. <laughs> um, if I'm ordering an Iranian takeaway, mm. then I'll be the fucking Dude. whiz kid Farsi. Hello? Salam. Hello, Shomo. Merci, Khaled Mamun. Misha, take away Safarish Badam. And as take away, Misha, take away Safarish Badam. But Yedune pours Scooby Dee. Scooby Doo, I love it. No, Scooby Dee. Yedune pours Scooby Dee. Yedune Marsus. Yedune Jujekaba Biostochun. This for the Iranian listeners, if you have any. I'd be surprised if you do. Have you heard that Adam Boxon is fantastic? <laughs> fantastic. Uh, I don't know. You'd be surprised. It's very diverse anyway, listenership. I mean, I mean, you know, to be honest, this is the first conversation I've had about this. And it's... I don't feel that I'm enlightening anyone. I don't feel that I'm doing anything other than either painting myself as a victim. Yes. Or painting myself as someone that doesn't care yeah 
And no, that's the problem with these conversations is that, especially on social media, you're you're expected to occupy one of two positions. I know, positions. but I want to have an intelligent conversation about it. But also, I feel like the energy that goes into trying to have a nuanced, enlightening conversation is just ends up feeling like... <laughs> Please don't hate me. I just really love doing these characters. And, you know, if I don't do these characters, then what am I going to do? Everything I've ever done that was good was based around this kind of thing. And, you know, I, I enjoy it. And so do a lot of other people. Please don't hate me. <laughs> that feels like the most honest reaction. I'm going to prove you all wrong. I'm going to get on that telephone and I'm going to pretend to be a Turkish man that I met in Kilmanairo just two weeks ago who thinks that a DVD is pronounced Duvd. And you're going to love it! <laughs> and I was right! They did, you know. You called someone up. Yeah, what's up, mate? Yes, uh, how much for your Duvd player? What? Duvd player. DVD, mate. Duvd. DVD. And what I'm doing is I'm going, can you tolerate the fact that I, English is not my first language, that this is an innocent mistake, but I'm sticking with it and I'm happy with it. And does it really bother you that much that I don't say DVD? And if it does bother you so much, then what does that say about you? You're talking as the character now. This is what's going on in my own mind. Right. In this interaction where I've managed to get someone that runs a hi-fi shop to get angry at me because I don't say DVD, I say duft. Because what I'm doing is going, now this is how I'm going to say it. And yes, I'm, I'm foreign. But is that enough? Are you going to let me do it and just get on with your life? Or are you going to hold on to that little thing? Mm -hmm. And what does that say about you? And that's what I find so revealing about this medium that I found myself in mm. where, yeah, it's a prank, but at the same time, it's a test. Every time I speak to someone as someone that is foreign, that foreign character that I'm doing is my foreignness. And it's the foreignness that I feel, even though English is my first language, I was born here. The foreigner that I feel, that skin that I can't shed, I'm going, you know what? I'm just going to go full pasty with it and throw something at you and, and try and expose part of you because I sense it in you even if I'm talking to you as me. Mm -hmm. You know, what's going on between us? What, what happens between two human beings when they interact with each other? Where's my prejudice? Where's your prejudice? You know, um, what are your uh, pre-existing uh, notions of me just by looking at me? And then when I open my mouth, how does that shift your perception of me? Mm -hmm. I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, this is a very tolerant country, a very tolerant country. That racism doesn't exist anymore. You know, that's, I'm hearing people say that to my face. And I'm going, well, that's not true, is it? Because I know that I'm no angel. And I know that you're definitely no fucking angel. Um... Why can't we have a more honest conversation rather than just slap a fucking Band-Aid on it and go, you know, look, I love this country. I love the UK. It's stunningly gorgeous. I grew up here and I love London and the mix of people that I've got to experience in my life here. Hmm. You know, I haven't 
fucked off to Norfolk yet, <laughs> but I'd like to. My granddad's buried in Norfolk, by the way. I buried him. Yeah, I buried him up there. So, uh, yeah, is that my closing gambit. That was good, man. That. But was... what is it? It's like you know. Well, I no, was spending no, time with Kevin Novak. <laughs> He's having a total meltdown. He couldn't. When you were doing your speech just then, that was an incredible portrait of a lady, <laughs> a man having a <laughs> total breakdown. All the voices and the thinking and the double thinking yeah, and the I'm anticipating. An artist, right, I'm an artist. I know. It was, I'm an artist. I've got very, to express myself. It you was know a I very mean? compelling portrait of the um, modern sensibility. In crisis. I was spending time with Adam Buxton. He'd invited me onto his podcast. I got a sense that he was a little tense, and I realised it was because he hadn't ejaculated in over six days. Have you not ejaculated in six days? That must be strange for you. Are you okay? You know, I don't like it when people do impressions of my impression back to me when I'm trying to (laughs) do an impression. It's very close to Broomfield, though, isn't it? Is it? I mean, it is. They, they, they sound similar. They have similar vocal mannerisms, and and it's the 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 the, the slightly strained thing. I think I'm a little offended by that statement. <laughs> You've, you're very good at doing the whispery thing that Louis does. My time with Adam was done. After four <laughs> hours of talking shit on his podcast, my time with Adam was at an end. You're listening to the. Louis Theroux podcast. I turned my microphone upside down in order to create a pre-credit sequence fuck-up that always put my audience at ease. Are you able to break down how you do your impressions? Are you able to... Um, I have zones, I guess. But, I mean, I don't do a lot of impressions. No, okay. I I hardly do any. Who do I do? Louis, I've enjoyed doing a lot for friends and family. And I'll make them the... I'll make my father-in-law... For example, the star of one of his documentaries, right. you know. It's very... I was spending time with Paul the Builder. He just bought a house in his daughter's name to save 30% on stamp duty. <laughs> Shit like that. He fucking loves that. Um, Adam Curtis then. I don't know if my Adam Curtis is that good because he's quite a... He's just... What was happening next would change the course of history forever. That kind of thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but there's a... It... Let's see. Let's remind ourselves of his voice. I really enjoy doing. Don't enjoy doing a lot anymore. Um, well, I saw you on Lorraine doing quite a good oh, Sean, Sean Connery. Yeah. Well, she made that because she was enjoying it so much, you know. Oh man, have you seen? Um, just a segue, but him on Aspel with a young Boris Johnson. No. Oh man. Oh yes. And, and Ricky Thomas was like. <laughs> Every time he cracks a joke. Or every time Sean Connery makes fun of Boris. <laughs> it's very... Boris used to be a sort of amusing panel guest. I suppose he's like he a whipping is. boy, but now he's Prime Minister. Adam Curtis. It's more... It's That's quite good. Let's see. If you like doing shit impressions. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah. Unconfident. 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 It's quite high. You're unconfident. Whenever Buckles was preparing food in the kitchen, he noticed that all the kitchen knives were blunt. This made chopping veg, especially squashy tomatoes, 
a frustrating and dispiriting process. He invested in a set of expensive ceramic knives, and for a while they worked well, slicing through even the squashiest veg. <coughs> That's gone. Cleanly oh. and precisely. Why, why the veg thing? Why the kitchen? Because I'm incorporating like a story from over here. my own life. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, who's Buckles? Me. Your Buckles? I'm A.A. Buckles. Adam Buckles. Dr. Buckles. I oh, know fuck. Oh, is this like a, a... When we were on the radio, me and Joe, people used to give us silly names. And Buckles was one of them. Yeah. Oh, shit. So this is actually playing to your core. Yeah. Fuck. Sorry, guys. Oh, fuck. oh God. But Are Buckles instruction. <laughs> Are you angry at me for some reason? Yeah, but I thought... But Buckles' instructions... About <laughs> you can't red card my Louis Theroux. About taking care of the ceramic knives. See, I'll put some Brianino under this and that'll, oh, okay. that'll lift it. All right. Which included not dropping them or putting them in the dishwasher were ignored by the rest of the house. Can you not record this when I'm gone? Who claimed he was being uptight. <laughs> but you need to always come to the abrupt end that he does. He shot himself. <laughs> he always does. Man, everyone shoots themselves. It's brilliant, especially in his latest one. It's nuts. You're like, oh, wow, this story's great. And then he shot himself. <laughs> oh, God. He did? But I thought he was going to change the world. <laughs> Alan Greenspan believed in a philosophy called logical positivism. Oh, that's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the positivism. Well, his isms are good. That's good. I like that. But at this very moment, a new president of the United States was elected who believed the opposite. He was convinced that he could use political power in its traditional way, to transform the world for the better. I was spending time doing impressions of Adam Curtis in Adam Buxton's podcast. Could I have a go at that? <laughs> Adam Greenspan believed... I'm just not getting... I feel silly. Are you angry at me for some reason? Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members' area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Table for one, yes. And are you looking for lunch or dinner? Um, oh, I don't know. It's my birthday, you see. So you're looking for lunch or dinner? Well, I don't know. It's my birthday, you see. What, what do you think? What would you recommend? I don't know. Would you like to come at lunch or at dinner? Well, I don't know. It's my birthday, you see. So uh, what do you recommend? Welcome back, podcats. That was Kay Van Novak talking to me there. 
And you also heard a short clip from his recent Phone Jacker series on Spotify. Link in the description. Very nice to see K-Van and to be pleasurably assaulted by the many people that live inside him, including Louis Theroux, of course. Don't think Louis heard that impression of him. Maybe I'll um, see what he thinks next time he comes on the podcast. Oh man, my hands are cold. Rosie, come on, Black Fox. Let's head back. Thanks again to everybody who came out to my book shows over the last few months. I'm so grateful to you all for hanging in there with all the rescheduling. I had a great time and it made me want to do more live bits and pieces, which I hope I'll do next year. Try some slightly different stuff out, as well as do some more bug shows. That's the plan. Hope we're going to do a couple more new shows. I'm doing the Bowie special as well again. Haven't done that in a few years. But I'm doing two shows on the 6th and 7th at the BFI South Bank, but it's part of a Bowie screen season that they're having there to coincide with his 75th birthday. I'll put a link in the description to uh, a piece that describes what you can expect from that BFI season. Hello, dog. I love you. Oh, did you know? Yes. Flappy reset. Also, I was recently on a Beatles podcast, Your Own Personal Beatles, it's called, hosted by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. Very enjoyable podcast. They've had lots of good guests on there. John Ronson's been on there. Matthew Crosby even got a shout-out on that Matthew Crosby episode. Nish Kumar, Felicity Ward, Laura Barton, music journalist, was on there. Very good episode, that one. And I went on there recently to waffle about my uh, Beatles-related memories from over the years. Gave me another excuse to play my version of How Do You Sleep? And also I dug out a bit of audio of Doors keyboard player Ray Manzarek talking about uh, Rubber Soul from when we did Vinyl Justice with him, me and Joe, years ago at his house in Los Angeles. But it was good fun talking to Jack and Robin. There's a link to their Apple Podcast page in the description. That's it for this week. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for all his work on this episode and his general production support. Thanks to Helen Green, who does the artwork for this podcast. Thanks to everybody at Acast for helping me keep the show on the road. Thanks, as ever, most of all, to you for listening. Till next time, stay fresh with the beat. Keep your room nice and neat. Be kind to your feet. That's the word on the street. It's raining. Do you want a hug? Come on. I love you. Bye!